Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Concept Aware. I am Sibylla Smith. Here, I host unscripted conversations with contemporary photographers, curators, and critics to discuss concept development and the photo bookmaking process. I do so through the lens of Concept Aware, my trademarked framework that identifies the layers within creative process and highlights specific tools that inform an artist's process. It speaks to how to bring ideas to fruition in image, book, and exhibition form. I'm excited to offer two online small group workshops to learn more about my actionable framework. I'm also offering to take you with me virtually to Paris Photo next month. Please visit my website, jsibillasmith.com, for more information, details, and registration. Today, I am honored to welcome Rahab El-Dalil to discuss the longing of the stranger whose path has been broken. Her community collaboration, a beautiful, textural, and informative book on her ancestral heritage and the community of the Bedouin of South Sinai. We traverse our 15-hour time difference and discuss how to amplify voices that have been stigmatized and stereotyped and how to highlight the wisdom, resilience, and joy of this ancient community, of those who live with tradition and principles and in ways are more modern than our contemporary societies. We cover a lot of territory. We recite poetry in Arabic and English, and we laugh a lot. I'm so glad you're joining our conversation. Let's begin. Rahab. I am thrilled to host you to discuss the 10-year journey of creating The Longing of the Stranger Whose Path Has Been Broken. I applaud your tenacity to tell this story as you envisioned it, a blend, a blended vision of voices across time, a multilingual expression told with sound, written word, and imagery. I love how this book defies categorization as every aspect is a collective and collaborative experience. The tenor of many hearts, minds, and hands are intricately woven into a textural object of beauty. It honors the masterful crafts of your people, the Bedouin, the desert dwellers, herders, weavers, foragers, and poets. Living in communion with the land, they comprise the oldest Arab nomadic tribal community inhabiting the Arabian, Syrian, and Sahara deserts. The Bedouin live on land we now call Egypt, Syria, Palestine, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Yemen, Morocco, Sudan, Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya. Your book focuses on the Sinai in Egypt and speaks to the fraught history of displacement and forced migration. 
Your ancestral community, the Jebaliya tribe, are located in St. Catharines in the South Sinai, a community less than 450 kilometers or 300 miles from Cairo. How can these ancient ways survive in a place so geographically close to the largest Middle Eastern city, the third largest city in Africa? How do these land keepers sustain their rich cultural heritage and maintain their identity? A people who long to live with the land, who follow the order laid from a foundation of customs and traditions, who live by principles, not laws, are being dominated by those who live by a philosophy of power over. This book is a stunning example of what can result from transactional relationship, relationships built on reciprocity and need. Your journey was initially led by your desire for recollection and reconnection, your need to gather pieces of your past, and it evolved into a generous act of reciprocity. Your story storytelling is one of intentional collaboration, giving agency to members of the St. Catherine community to bring their voices, experiences, and traditions to life in a manner that allows them to live into the future. It is ironic that in your research, you learned the translation of your surname, El Delil, to mean a guide. The means of your storytelling is guided by your belief that you are an agent of change, an activist, and to tell authentic stories means to being an active participant, creating with to give voice to the voiceless. Your manner of storytelling challenges the linear framework of traditional documentary work. You are not the engaged observer reporting on the other. It is this belief, your conviction in how to tell a story that led to your being chosen to receive the awards that supported your making of your work into a book. You do the best description of your own book. So I'm going to quote you when you have spoken about the longing of the stranger whose path has been broken. This is how you describe it. And I quote, a dialogue on the universal journey of finding home, a line between internal and external reflections, factual and magical contemplations, an archive woven by the Boudouin community, a dance, a visual conversation on the continuous human process of searching for a home and a celebration of the indigenous experience that has long been seen through a romanticized gaze. The book essentially questions what it means to belong. What is this indescribable connection to the land that we all long for and the indigenous experience that is filled with both sorrow and celebration? It invites readers to examine their own idea of belonging while acknowledging the community's voice in the process. This book is a timestamp before colossal change. This book is for future generations and wandering beings." End quote. 
Rahab, you are an example of blending process and practice. I am so thrilled to have the opportunity to hear how you weave your creative life so integrally with your personal life. So welcome. Thank you so much, Sabella. Like, this made me really emotional. <laughs> Thank you so much for such an amazing introduction. I'm really, really honored. <laughs> I am honored too. You've really given us such a beautiful blend. And I think you speak to how your identity evolution became the center of your practice. Yeah, how... that's true. I mean, I felt, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. <laughs> yeah I, I mean I felt that um, to actually do work that like you really believe in you need to connect to it personally and my personal experiences have always been this motivation and inspiration to to work on professional projects anyways <laughs> so why not embrace it and um, you know and create personal stories that you can really connect to and find a way to connect to the protagonists of your of your stories mm-hmm but it sounds like um, you you didn't, um, it sounds like there was such an evolutionary process, like almost your way home became a way of telling a story. Like there, I just get this sense mm. of actually movement. Mm. Your journey. Yeah, true. Yeah, absolutely. I honestly, like, I felt drawn to work on this project even before I, I understood why. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think once I understood why, it took the project to a, a totally different uh, place because um, I started this project or the research for the project when I was still in, in college. I was doing my bachelor's in photography and I just chose a community that I've known for so many year- years since I was a child. But I didn't know I had ancestral connection to the community. I didn't know I had this um, connection to the land as well. I just learned from my father, who was a veteran during the occupation. He was uh, involved in the war against the occupation, how important this land is and how important the native community of this land is. And so I grew up really um really appreciating the community but also really involved with the community and so when I started to learn photography it was the space where I felt comfortable to use my photography and and I thought maybe I could use this photography in order to create a different narrative of the Bedouin community because even in Egypt um the Bedouins are seen uh through stereotypes and stigma it's not just the western countries um, and I think this is the case for many indigenous communities around the world. They're not seen as modern simply for maintaining their traditions, even some traditions that um, you know, have survived over, over the years of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're highly discriminated, looked at as second-class citizens. I mean, you could see so many different examples around the world of indigenous communities still being seen to this day that way. So I thought, okay, maybe I could use my photography to show a different face of the Bedouin community. And so I started, you know, creating, um, 
I would say random photographs that didn't have a like a complete storyline until this one day when I when I met a Bedouin elder who was super curious about my last name which is translated to the word guide and uh, I was speaking with him and he you know he casually mentioned that yes there was a Dalil family here in Katrin and they left around this uh, year and went to the Azit and it's another city it's an it's an urban city and this is actually where my father was born so mm. this is when the connection started to appear and i had so many questions and as a military uh man <laughs> he's not very open to you know open up about our background but he also he still answered me he was like yes we like his mother uh was palestinian and his father was bedouin from from sinai from sina and uh, this is when i felt okay then this this feeling of being you know really connected or drawn to the community has you know like has a reason like maybe mm. it's, I, I felt the spiritual connection even before I really understood about my 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 ancestors my Bedouin mm. ancestors so that gave me a bit of a courage and also motivation mm. to to dig deeper about the Bedouin identity because it is part of my identity even though I was not brought up as Bedouin it's still part of my identity and so I I went on to work on the project to learn about the Bedouin identity but as I learned further I understood that no matter what I do, I'm still not completely Bedouin. I cannot call myself Bedouin because I need mm -hmm. to respect the Bedouin community who have li lived through the sorrows of being part of an indigenous community. And hence the title, you know, the longing of the stranger. I will forever be a stranger, even if I'm involved with the community. I mean, by time I became uh, partially based there. Uh, I built with the tribe elders a clinic that, uh, uh, provides free medical services to the community. I became a civil rights activist away from photography. And, and that way I got more involved with the community on a more uh, human level. But I'm still, mm -hmm. I need to still respect the fact that I was not brought up as Bedouin and that my identity is more complex than, you know, just calling myself Bedouin because I haven't lived the indigenous experience for that. Um, and this is when the question of, do I have the right to narrate the story alone uh, ignited? And this is where the next step of the project uh, developed. Mm, <laughs> I'm going to stop here and, and give yeah. more space for questions. <laughs> but that's a great description. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and you drop it right in the right place. Do I have a right to tell this story? Um, I, I think the last part of what you said is without participation. I mean, it was, you were so honoring the reality of your lenses and owning that you have connection, but there is a different lived experience and you're honoring that and you're honoring the lived experience to have room and voice. Um, and I think that that's a, a, a welcome change to the documentary style that is so focused on a linear observational um, kind of dominant culture, hierarchically looking and putting on a different level, usually below the other. 
right? Yep. It's yep. it's this exoticizing, yep. it's the colonializing, it's the canon that we, you know, it's actually the visual culture we were fed, right? Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. To change yeah, that. You know, even exactly and even as a photographer who's egyptian who's you know uh considered as a bedouin diaspora i still fell in that trap when i first started photography because i subconsciously absorbed the inspirations of the colonial gaze mm-hmm. and so when i started my photography when i started you know to do photographs i subconsciously visual references are these representations that were created in the past by uh, Western men or colonialists and so on. So it's a tra- it's a trap that everyone falls into, even if they're, you know, if they're not uh, Western and so on, that you could still fall, fall into that because who has been documenting cultures? It was excluded to only <laughs> the wealthy Western men, you mm-hmm. know? And so when we study photography, when we look for references, we only find that. So if you don't look through a critical eye and I, and more of a critical eye also um, through a human eye, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, an, an empathetic human eye, uh, mm-hmm. then we definitely fall in that trap. And I, it took me a, quite a while to, to own up to the photographs that I've created before and it was also um it was also a huge tipping point for me to actually look at the photographs and realize what was wrong with it because I would look at the photographs and I feel like these are different people that I know personally I mean why are the photographs looking weird and it just took me a lot of time to understand and to um you know and to have the 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 right words to you know to to call out <laughs> the the visual references that I subconsciously have absorbed in my mind. Wow. Am I gonna quote you on all of the above? <laughs> <laughs> and and also you're talking about something that comes back so often in many, many of my conversations. It's literally what you're highlighting and I I try, this is the foundation to my concept aware framework. It's to become conscious. It's why it's called concept aware because we are the first lenses, right? And we all walk with filters. We all walk with filters and it is our responsibility to understand the filters. And you have done that because we swim in the colonial gaze, whether we're Western or not Western. It's very similar when I was talking to Carney Arelli on uh, I Mama, which brought out a lot of the, um, the female gaze um, and this idea of whether we were looking through the lens of patriarchy, which is what we swim in, whether we're men or women. So it's this idea. um, And I love that you brought up not only a critical eye to lead it to a human eye, and then you mentioned an empathic eye. And it's so interesting. Just recently, um, I was looking at these definitions and I brought it up in two podcasts previously. And in terms of empathy, to actually define empathy, it is without judgment. You can't have empathy and judgment. And to get to that space is 
key. And I think that's what's so wonderful and what's really um, lively about your book is because you get that. You get, like you referenced before, the sorrow and the celebration. Um, I love that I'm looking at people um, who you have captured and I'm thinking, okay, I'm looking at someone who has a pen in their pocket and buttons on their costume, which I know neither of which existed before, right? So it's this integration mm -hmm. of the now with the then and how that mm -hmm. gets translated. And, and I found it so interesting how you honored tradition and, and I'd love for you to speak about this because you, from your perspective of someone as a modern urban woman in this community, you're, you're finding a way to tell this story, that blending. And, and I loved that. Like you've done that both in images and in what you wrote about. Um, so I'd love to unpack that. There's so many things. There's things like, um, I learned about the gender roles and, and I think about that, how massively different over these years they've become. But I learned that the men would be home while women were out with their yeah. herd. And so this idea that there's, there's, it's not, um, it's not conventional gender roles. It's different. And that that needs to be brought out that whole idea of what is kept and what isn't kept. Mm -hmm. How sure. did you well, work with that? Sure. I, I actually want to unpack this further because my first question would be, what does it mean to be modern? Because I feel ah, often, mm -hmm. <laughs> often people confuse modern from being Western. And ah. um, for a community to, to be embracing their traditions, that does not hinder them from being modern. Mm -hmm. um, actually, that can actually make them even more modern than other communities that are trying to embrace different other, other cultures rather than theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, because there is, um, how do I say it? Uh, uh, the word comes to my mind in Arabic. Let me try to think of it in English. But um, there is this sort of um, elegance, Say elevation in the way that they see themselves. Mm -hmm, <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, and that, in fact, is actually, is actually modern because it, it, it takes rid of um, colonial um, influences mm. in, that, in, my, in my point of view. Mm -hmm. So we need to actually create a difference between being modern and being Western. And then look back at the... A Bedouin community who have created this amazing mix between modernity and traditions. Mm -hmm. So one of the quite famous or like very ancient as well traditions within the Bedouin community is writing, is using mm -hmm. the pen mm -hmm. and in, in storytelling and in poetry. Mm -hmm. So there are ancient uh, writings of Bedouins uh, mm -hmm. writing poems 
that has to do with love, that has to do with the land, that has to do with belonging, that even has to do with the discrimination that they have gone through with their experiences with the occupation and, and so on. So for a Bedouin man to be wearing his jalabiya, his traditional um, dress, and to have a pen in his pocket is actually honoring uh, traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but then using technology to raise awareness about that, that these traditions and actually sharing these poetry online, that is modernity. Mm, I love uh, how you did that. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, <laughs> yes. And I, it brings me to what I learned. Thank you for bringing out that example and how it underscores and how my lens cannot see as clearly pulling apart the modern from the Western. So that's really, really helpful. Um, The word that came to my mind while you were trying to think of the Arabic and go ahead and use the Arabic, because I'd love to know what the Arabic word was that you were landing on, because what you made me think of in English was cultural appropriation. Mm, Okay. (laughs) Right? That's another place where we like, you know, dominate and take over. (laughs) So what was the word, do you remember the word? about the um, elevation yeah it's uh, it's okay let me google translate it really quick for some <laughs> reason like my mind sometimes yeah, yeah just like uses one language over the other wow impressive um, like raise uplift or yeah. like yep 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 promote. you said <laughs> yes you said you said elevate so I yes, guess, exactly. I, I, and I, I guess what I'm saying is it's empowerment, right? It's empowerment yeah. and it's ownership. Yep. Yeah. And let's, and let's also discuss that other part of the gender roles, because yeah. funny enough, this has not changed throughout the years. Like the mm. tradition of women um, uh, move like uh, walking with the village herd from sunset to sunrise every day, even uh, the next day of the, of the wedding and so on. This has been going on for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Um, what has been changed was the role of the man. Mm-hmm. Um, so their role has always been to care for the children when the women are away, mm-hmm. uh, but also because of the discrimination that has been increasing throughout the years, their job opportunities has been reduced Mm -hmm. so men right now they only work as either as guides in tourism Mm -hmm. uh, or freelance builders both on freelance basis so they don't work every day or if they have a governmental job it's like from nine to one or something and then they could care for the children when they're back from school Mm -hmm. Uh, before there were other jobs because of climate change for example a lot of farms and gardens have been dried up so they're not able to go to their gardens every day before there were there were gardens because the 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 entire valleys and the, the region would flood around every year so creating a lot of opportunities for produce so there is of course a lot of uh political and also environmental uh, influences onto the man's role uh, within the community but for the women 
Um, their role has, has, has been the same throughout the years, but also statistically, women are more educated than men within the Jabalaya tribe because more women graduate from higher institutes and high schools because a lot of men, because of the economic issues, they leave school early before they finish their high school in order to help their parents uh, with, uh, with, uh, uh, guide, uh, with tourism, working mm. as guides or as builders. So statistically, women are even more educated. So they have the upper hand in so many decisions around the house, for example. And, um, you know, uh, but wow. they don't, they don't, uh, not many work in, in, uh, in traditional bases, uh, some mm. work as nurses, for example, but their main job is uh, herding the, like, or caring for the herd for the village. Wow. So they're that's... super progressive. They're, they have been more progressive than so many <laughs> European countries in the past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's um, it was interesting because you wove in this story about the girls' mountain, and and another interesting part about wedding proposals, uh, how they were how they were done, and then this idea of the three sisters. Do you want to share that? Yeah, sure. So there's a, a mountain that's called Jabal al-Banit or the mountain of the girls. And there's a legend. There's like there's a lot of folklore stories that you never know. Is it true or not? You have no idea. But there's a moral of the story which lives on. And the story goes by that there were uh, three beautiful girls in a village. And the sign of beauty uh, within the Bedouin culture is having long, luscious black hair. And these three girls had that. And um, one night they found out that they were um, engaged to be married to three men that they don't know. And they you know, did not decide to marry them. And so the next day, the girls decided to go up a nearby mountain. They braided their beautiful hair to each other and then they jumped off the mountain. And since then, uh, the mountain was named uh, the mountain of the girls, Jabal al-Banet. And it was a reminder of women's rights to choose. And in this case, to choose to marry, but it has been applied in you know, so many other uh, factors in a woman's life. And, uh, and no one knows when this story came up. No one knows if it's actually true, but it has been a folkloric story that is used throughout generations to remind women of their you know, power over their lives, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was a welcome part. I also learned, I appreciated how you shared how home is 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 sacred ground, and this idea of of a guest yard and those layers to hospitality. That must feel so ingrained to you. Yeah, true. I mean, I um because of my position in the community uh being you know operating a clinic and and also photographing i've always felt very conscious when i'm invited into the house uh, beyond the guest area mm-hmm. do i have the right to take photographs even if they're happy to even if they're happy for me to take photographs i'm still worried that they would they're feeling a little bit 
um, exploited or pressured because I'm running this clinic on the other side of the of the mountain. Right? So I've always felt that, okay, these are sacred grounds. I'm not going to take my camera out of my bag unless I feel 100% comfortable and that they are happy and super welcoming for that. It's not like I'm forcing the camera onto them. So it took me a, a few years <laughs> to mm. have the courage to take the camera out once I'm inside the house beyond the 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 guest area the guest yard uh, because I really respect that space I mean they create uh, the community creates this sort of respect to, the, to their home mm. um, that that I think we all need to respect I mean so many of us we don't realize how um, how per- personal our houses are and mm-hmm. for people to come into our house it is a privilege you know <laughs> mm-hmm. because they see a piece of our our lives that create makes us vulnerable mm-hmm. and in the case of of this photography project I felt vulnerable because I didn't want to um, to be exploiting without realizing the community because of the other um, the other work that I do on the uh, you know parallel to the photography project mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In in terms of um modernity i thought it was really interesting because you you follow people you know very well in the book and that's who you're photographing and one of the women said to you i want you to get me a red dress in cairo because that's important <laughs> and i just thought that was so fascinating right how i you need to unpack that for me how that facility or fluidity between those pieces like of the tradition it was when uh, it was uh, I think the ceremony of being hennaed yes yeah Yeah. before the wedding yeah yeah and 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 the person basically saying like help me dress for that but knowing that that was going to come from a very different place yeah well that's um (laughs) That's actually well. What I've been trying to do in the project is to um, to subtly uh, point out mm-hmm. on the changes that are happening within the community mm-hmm. and how the community has been changing throughout the years, and also subtly point at the political pressures as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, because of uh, the lack of um, the lack of facilities for the community, because of the lack of opportunities. Uh, the Bedouin community in Sina or in Sinai have have you know have gone through a lot of economical issues mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that has affected how they dress because Bedouin dresses are very expensive. Like they, especially mm-hmm. during the weddings, it, it is it has it was like full of gold, super heavy. You know, it took takes years for women to make and. And after uh, after the retrieval of Sinai from the occupation, because of the many uh, facilities that have been closed um, for the community to actually have you know stable income and so on, they had to sell their dresses. They mm-hmm. had to sell a lot of the um, you know the traditional things that they have around the house. And so uh, now Bedouin women they dress. Uh, they buy their dresses from other cities like Cairo. Mm-hmm. And 
come to it, there's also this uh, influence of urban styles and urban fashion that makes also women want to dress like, you know, Kairin or urban uh, or urban women as well. Mm -hmm. So there is a merge between political influences and also cultural influences that I wanted to subtly point out at without uh, without you know without taking the project into a very traditional photojournalistic manner so I thought I could do that through the very casual and friendly conversations that I have uh, with the community and commentate with more poetic photographs that are more of symbols uh, or metaphors rather than you know to go and, and do it in a, you know, traditional journalistic uh, manner. Yeah, well, I, I'd love to unpack that because I think you made a lot of um, very specific decisions, both um, on the way to how they were used in a book. So that I'm thinking of, mm. of um, a couple of things. One is I really appreciate, um, I have a background in fashion, specific to fashion history and specific to the idea that we can understand our people, our whole um, uh, human evolution through our costume. Um, and literally when I studied uh, the history of fashion, we started in Mesopotamia and it was tribes that brought in everything from felt to fringe to, you know, uh, uh, I know an Egyptian uh, uh, holdover is having one shoulder have fabric on it and the other not. Like there's so many ways in which um, power and and prestige and um, all of our socio-political cultural lives are expressed in what we wear or don't wear. Um, mm -hmm. So it's it, it's very rich, and I feel like you were able in this book to blend so much of it, right? That you do give the nod back and forward. Um, and then I love if you want to talk about a few different things. One is that your field guide within this book, which was so welcome and, and so fun. I loved that I got onto a a paper that was translucent. Uh, um, I'm I'm a sucker for that type of vellum. I love that, but that it was also <laughs> handwritten and drawn, and the folk wisdom that you that you put together. How tell us about those ideas and how you literally gave images to people to uh, collaborate with to to empower them. Sure. So, um, so it's great because we're moving in a very logical timeline. <laughs> so <laughs> this is really good because I feel like, because you know, throughout the ten years, I mean, so many things has happened. So sometimes yeah. when I tell the story, it becomes really messy. So thank you for organizing the timeline. <laughs> um. So when I when I realized that, like I like when I started to like question my right to narrate and can I narrate the story alone or why do I feel weird about you know telling that story alone and so on this is when uh, a typical point has been made in the project and this is when I felt that I needed to collaborate with the community um, to tell this the story in a more profound and deeper level 
And so the collaboration was divided very organically, honestly. Um, I started out first with the men, with the poetry, mm-hmm. uh, because they, uh, it was just like super easy. Like when I, like, I've always engaged with them in conversation to make sure that what I'm doing in the project is actually something that they want. Mm-hmm. And so we talked a lot about the, their indigenous experience, um, you know, the discrimination, the stigma they're going through, how things have changed throughout the years and their sense of belonging and what it means to belong. Mm-hmm. And so their answers have always been in poetry. I mean, Bedouin men are some of the most romantic men I've met in my entire mm, life. Yeah. You know, imagine sitting with someone and they would just break in song with poetry, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was just really organic to start collecting the poetry. But then I felt that I wanted to also have the women's voice. And it was very important for me to, to include that. I mean, you cannot talk about a community without involving the women's voice because in, in many communities, women are actually the more dominant. <laughs> but mm-hmm. a lot of historians don't want to, <laughs> to admit that. <laughs> Matriarchy, yay. <laughs> yes, yay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I've i had so many challenges in how to involve that women's voice. One of which is because women have gone through uh, worse experiences on how they have been represented in the past in the media. They have been seen as these very weak, you know, women that, you know, are only there to produce children mm-hmm. and offspring for the men, you know, and you would see photographs of them making bread. And that is not correct because, because as we have spoken earlier, women ha- are a huge and more most important pillar within the community. Mm-hmm. They're the breadwinners of the community uh, after all. Uh, but because of these issues, a lot of the women whom I have very close relationship with, they still were very hesitant about being photographed. And I needed to respect that. But at the same time, I needed to include their voices. And so the idea came up uh, of creating this visual conversation between us, because Bedouin women embroidery is a big part of their life. They learn how to embroider uh, because it's traditional, uh, because it's also a sort We're losing a quality of sound. Oh, okay. Can you hear me? Okay. So I can we, hear you. Okay, good. We just lost <laughs> you when you were talking about the visual conversation and leaning into um the idea of embroidery, but what you said right before that got marbled. But- sure, no problems. So the idea of a visual conversation came up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what came to mind is embroidery, because mm-hmm. embroidery is a huge part of a woman's life within within the community, because it's traditional. And they still, you know, they still embroider to to honor their traditions, but it's also a source of income. A lot of women also embroider um, handbags, clothes, and they sell it to tourists or mm-hmm. in urban cities uh, around Egypt. So it is part of their way of expressing themselves. So mm-hmm. the idea came that I would take photographs of the women 
print it on fabric, and then give it back to the woman with a huge bag of beads and needles and thread. And, and every one, woman would have this power over her image and they could do whatever they want. They could hide their identity if they want, if they feel more comfortable with that. They could add commentary. And it, 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 I felt like this is going to the right path when one of the women, Nadia, uh, I took a photograph of her like from the side and I printed on fabric, gave it to her. And the agreement was that she would embroider her face in order to hide it. But when I took it back, she actually highlighted her face. Mm, I actually, mm-hmm. her, her cousin Mariam is the one who did it. And I asked her, like, why? It was a surprise. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't pressure her to do that. And she was like, no, because I realized that the issue was not with me showing my face. I show my face everywhere. It is the, the issue was me having power over my photograph. And that's what I felt with the with this collaboration. And that made me feel really good yeah. <laughs> about this path that I've taken. And um, and after that, just things really developed where women would choose either photographs of them or of their children or their their families or of their neighborhoods women started to commentate over climate change in, in, in climate change embroidering on uh, an image of uh, a dried land mm-hmm. um you know and commentating on that and how the landscape has changed because of because of that and this created the series of embroidered photographs that you would see in the book in textural paper mm-hmm. uh, and you would see it back in front as well because mm-hmm. I feel you would you know you could maybe feel as if you're touching the, the original embroidery but also if you look further you would start noticing the different people who have made the embroidery older women they their their stitches are super tight they're very articulate <laughs> but the younger women they're very like they're they're in, they're very hasty they want to finish really quickly so their stitches are very big so you would start seeing this you know fun pattern and i felt that this could be a very nice way for the readers and the audience to connect to the women on a personal level you know mm-hmm. and and then and then the older generations, they had a different uh, thought when I asked them what it means to belong. And I asked them to be part of the project. And the, the, the answer that has been repeated throughout different people that I've spoken with is the land. For them, mm-hmm. belonging means the land. This interconnectedness between people and land. Mm-hmm. That's the way it's like that's the way belonging is shaped for in their point of view. Mm-hmm. And so we have, you know, started to think of how can we um, depict that visually? And it, it still happened by by the people. Sheikh Jamil was the first person who forged plants to me and he showed me how uh, rich the, his knowledge was of the native plants in Sinai. And he started writing notes to me about the medicinal uses of mm-hmm. these plants. Mm-hmm. And then by time, more more people from the community started to participate. Uh, the last person was Amragab, uh, who actually passed away uh, last week. Uh, so this is just to acknowledge his contribution mm-hmm. to the project. Um, mm-hmm. May he rest in peace. Um, and so I started to collect all of these forged plants and handwriting by the contributors of the medicinal uses of these plants. And I found out that it's the first time for the community to actually document this. Not, you know, not a, a like a, 
a scientist or a photographer outside of the community parachuting in, but it's them who are writing their culture. Mm-hmm. And we created uh, a small handbook uh, of these plants and the uh, the information handwritten. Mm-hmm. And then I showed it to the younger generations who are more distant to the land because mm-hmm. they don't find the opportunities. And I mean, they are only seeing the stigma and the lack of opportunities. And so I thought, okay, maybe that could be, be a bridge between the younger and the older generations to connect to the land. Mm -hmm. And the first thing the younger generations asked is, can you translate this in English? We we want to use it to sell these plants to tourists. And so uh, with with a funding that I got from National Geographic, I was able to print the field guide and be, and it would have the Arabic and the English translation. And now they're using it to, to, to of course learn about the plants, but wow. also sell these plants to tourists. That and is so, so when we, <laughs> can you, <laughs> thank can you, you. Are, you so, are you selling the guide? Uh, the guide, it hasn't been public, uh, publicly uh, uh, available, but it should, it should be soon. <laughs> I, I just want to make sure that the, the, the main book is just, uh, is distributed properly, but it will, it will be soon uh, uh, avail- be available to the public. <laughs> it's, it's so rich, right? It is such rich Thank knowledge you. and it's so necessary. I'm looking through the book to find the image because I loved the talk about modernity uh, right up against um, tradition and and heritage. Um, I'm not, it is the, this might have been the person that you just mentioned that that showed you the foraging of the plants. I found it. Okay. It is this picture with the plant in front of his face. This is Selimane, actually. He's the poet that you would ah, see great. poems all over all over the book. And you would, uh, there's also a poem uh, where you would find the QR code underneath. Yeah. And you could hear him recite the poetry himself. Yes, that's why I mentioned the sound, because I listened to both him reciting his poetry, but I loved that you got a soundscape. So you also gave us <laughs> that. You. I listened to the whole thing and it's oh, just beautiful and <laughs> so, so important, right? It is, it really makes you feel connected, which is exactly what you wanted to do. <laughs> and, um, and what's interesting is what I learned of this picture and the leaf, it made me think of COVID, right? And it made me think of this idea that, um, they make the reference, he makes the reference that this is my face mask. And this idea that the medicinal and the indigenous knowledge of living in communion with the land is what has been so um, reliable when you are in a transactional relationship instead of power Mm. over. And and I'm thinking about... um, there was a flood and there was water brought and there were gardens in the last few years. And this idea that that it's being spoken of the land is providing for us again, it is it is sustaining the keepers. Um, and I loved all the ways you wove that very clearly, like crystally um, through the project. And I also loved the skyscapes because it's actually quite amazing to imagine 
the 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 ability and the time to be navigated by stars and that yep. that yeah. is the history and 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 it's still that honoring you have a picture of the milky way and then you know just you have a time lapse photograph as well which it must be mesmerizing to just watch a night sky um as it changes um yeah and it's that whole yeah. idea of again honoring it and not trying to dominate like what star can i get to <laughs> which is unfortunately <laughs> a part of our reality too that's right that's true <laughs> goodness yeah. gracious that's so interesting um you made me think of one other example Oh, I know that I told you that I wanted to read some of the poetry. So I'm going to read the way um, the poem um, that you were that inspired the name of the book, the title of the book. So the poem is by Mahmoud Abu Hussain. Yeah, great job. <laughs> oh, good. OK. And um, it is short, but it says longing for those we sit waiting for the longing of the stranger whose path has been broken. And I know in the beginning, this looks like your handwriting where you write in English and Arabic, I am the stranger whose path has been broken. Um, and I, I loved so much of the poetry, um, but I'm gonna ask you to read the one that is so um, indicative of I would say the deep, deep empathy that uh, that is foundational to your people. Thank you. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna lead. I'm gonna read it, and I hope I I I order it correctly. I'm not a poet. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> don't have a uh, a very artistic uh, voice. <laughs> You'll be so, fine. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> I hope City Man doesn't get upset that I'm reading his poem wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can also listen to an example of him doing it, but go ahead. You'll be good. <laughs> okay, great. So this is in Arabic. Uh, City Man Abdurrahman is the one who um, uh, made this uh, poem. Um, <laughs> نحفظ حقوق الضيف ودا وترحيب ما في لون ولون جميعا تساوى متساوى من دون عد وترتيب نصف حياضي نصفح أيادي الناس نجلي الغشاوة قلوبنا ما شبه شك وعذاب beautiful <laughs> do you want to read the translation yeah sure <laughs> uh, we are the Arabs the origin of Bedouins and the nomad life we rise palms of pride with faith, with faithfulness and goodness. We walk along alongside kinship, no enmity, cordial and welcoming. We keep our guests' rights. No, know this color or that color, all are equal. Our treatment is the same, no calcula calculation or order. We shake people's hands and break barriers of doubt and flaws. Our hearts are pure. Mm -hmm. Stunning, so beautiful. <laughs> um, I've got I've got a question, which is um, I'm thinking that what you chose for the cover is um, what you described as the more hastily done 
um, <laughs> embroidery. Um, but I wonder if you could say something about that and then the what's on the side. Sure. The book binding. So Sure. So uh, the cover was a big challenge. Um, of course, the, the entire book was a challenge, how to merge different textures and things. <laughs> and I have to say, Bayan Dahdah, who is the uh, designer of the book, mm -hmm. she's amazing. She uh, She's a Palestinian designer, and she's the one who did all the insides of the book, like the content of the book, but not the cover. Uh, she's also the one who had the idea of um, of uh, putting some of the uh, uh, images from the field guide in translucent paper mm -hmm. uh, because we had issues how to merge these di different visual languages into one another. Um, so that was amazing. But the cover was so difficult. <laughs> um, and uh, because, because I've always imagined that the cover would be something that is, um, that is abstract that is you know not a photograph because I didn't want the book to seem as a photography book I wanted the book to seem as a journal or as an invitation to write a journal you know mm. um and so and so photo evidence have resorted to another designer who would work on this um it's Federica and she um and she listened like to me like for an hour trying to explain what I want to do with the book <laughs> and the, like the the easiest or the best way it was for her to honor my needs for the book but also create something that will be interesting for people to open is to use one of the embroidered uh, photographs that were or actually one of the embroideries itself not the photographs uh, and that for me was was amazing because it it creates enough curiosity I hope for people mm -hmm. to open the book and to see through it and the sides is just basically the uh, the stitches that you would see in one of the embroidered photographs. Um, but what's funny is that we don't have a title uh, in the front. Mm -hmm. And in the back, you would only see the publisher's name and my name. But And what's funny is that we I only realized this after we printed is that all Arabic speakers, they opened the book from the other side where they would yes. find the name. <laughs> and I thought, OK, oh, man, I shouldn't have thought of that. And but for them, that was funny because Arabic speakers, they prefer reading the context first before seeing the photographs. But English speakers, they prefer seeing the photographs first. And I was like, OK, that was a, a great coincidence <laughs> wow that's yeah. so great I was thinking about that because I was thinking knowing that an a, an Arabic person would pick this up and go uh what is that left to right and uh an an English speaking person would go right to left so I was yeah. thinking about that and and yeah, we that's... actually it took us so much, so many, so uh, like a lot of time to yeah. decide whether we could make the book open from the right, from the left. Can we do both? Because I wanted to honor both languages. Uh, ah. Both languages helped me talk about this project. Mm -hmm. Some texts you see have been translated from Arabic to English, but some others have been translated to English from Arabic because of my complex identity. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to honor both languages. It was very important for me to do that. So it came in coincidence how it was <laughs> created wow. at the end. That's so wonderful. It's one of those happenstances that is yeah. like yeah like the muse at work it's like thank you um yes exactly one other idea that I had in reference to the cover 
is A, it is mysterious. Um, it somewhat feels like a bird in flight, but it also, um, you definitely got the size of a journal. It, it, it feels in your hand like a journal. Um, but I also love that you're actually giving us the back first, which is exactly <laughs> what you really do in the book. Right? Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thank so, you for saying that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so, so fun. And I also love the end papers. I love the drawing that. <laughs> Thank you. Where, where it was is... drawn by the, it was drawn by the children from yeah. a specific uh, village in, in, in Sina. And it looks like it's, I'm, I'm, flipping between the two because it's one continuous piece I definitely get palm trees yeah. and I get clouds and I get birds but I think I get water but yes maybe, yeah, yeah because yeah it's funny because well Sina or Sinai it's uh it, it, I mean there are three three sides of this of this land is seeing the water but mm. funny enough the Jabalaya tribe uh they are in the desert so yeah. in the in the peninsula itself so there is no water okay and some of the children have never seen water be before and this is why they're called jabalaya jabalaya comes from jabal which means mountain mm. uh so the children they they only imagine how the water would look like if it passed by the the mountain and so mm. a lot of their drawings it's it, it includes you know, it includes the, the water. And I feel this is super inclusive because it talks about Sina or Sinai in general, not just mm -hmm. their land, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is very, which is very cool. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've, you know, collected a lot of drawings throughout the years. The children would all the time give me uh, drawings as a gift when they pass by the clinic. Mm -hmm. And I kept just means a lot. And I thought it would be a nice way to honor their voice as well, because you don't see a lot of the, you know, a lot of the voices of the children who have grown throughout the years as well with me. I mean, uh, there's a photograph of Muhammad who is flipping his car. Yes. And yes. it looks like a horn. I've known Muhammad since he was five. Muhammad is 19 now. Mm. <laughs> and it's just, he's also the one who drew the, the end paper. And uh, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's an honor to see them growing up. And I wanted to, you know, to, to show that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, actually, what's so interesting is you, you gave us a portal into his imagination, which is so beautiful. <laughs> and also it does, it looks like a river, which is what they were literally imagining as you, as you describe. That's so uh, cool. Sea, I, actually, not a river, but yeah. <laughs> say that again? Uh, it's a sea, not a river. Yes, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that they're picturing a sea, but the way it's drawn feels or looks like a river but that's it, true <laughs> yeah and it, they're not yeah they're not imagining how big the sea is that's that's actually a very cool way of thinking about it <laughs> yes yes but I'm also thinking that what it does speak to too is when there are floods so the floods mm -hmm. that they yeah, do true. witness are like a river um that's very true you're you're bringing me back to um when I was working in New York with someone that had come from a country in Africa and had never seen snow. And I was with mm -hmm. them the first time they saw snow. <laughs> so magical, right? So yeah. wonderful. Course, yeah. 
Um, well, I wanted to ask you about a couple of other things. One is that, um, tell us a little bit, because it was this combination between photo evidence and the TPMAC uh, awards that really helped move you forward. So if you could speak a little bit about how, how you've been able to put your work out there and then get the kind of assistance to amplify it. Sure. So it's funny how this project like really evolved uh, because it, first of all, it witnessed a lot of change in my practice, mm -hmm. uh, how I've changed from a traditional documentary photographer or photojournalist to someone who's more dancing between fine art and documentary photography. And actually I'm trying to change the idea of documentary photography into something that's more dynamic and collaborative with the communities that I work with, but also it has witnessed a lot of changes in my personal life. So by the end of the project, um, in 2021, I mean, the project officially ended in 2022, at least temporarily. Um, but by 2021, I uh, I moved back to Cairo mm -hmm. uh, because of two reasons. One is uh, the government has started to work uh, on to create construction sites mm -hmm. in Sina. And this is what has been happening uh, throughout the nation, changing the entire cultural landscape of the country, which is very very unfortunate and extremely sad but also I was pregnant hmm. so I thought okay it would be better to be closer to family for that and um and so at that point I was like okay so there's a huge change that's gonna happen into the landscape and so why not use this time to form dummy books and see how the project will go and start to actively publish the work and you know through different um, platforms and also competitions and so on mm -hmm. and in that year I applied to different I got nominated for the Troubadis uh, Albert Camus award uh, and I applied for that but I also applied for world press photo photo evidence W award and so on so uh, I had my baby I had Aida in October mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, and then um, by the end of the year and the start of the 2022, the results started to appear. So I won the World Press Photo Award uh, in the open format category. Mm -hmm. um, and then I won the Photo Evidence W Award mm -hmm. that allows me to uh, publish the book finally. And uh, the same week where, when I was uh, receiving my World Press Photo Award in Amsterdam, I got news that I also got the Albert Camus Award, which, uh, which divides the award between a personal, uh, a personal award, but also funding to publish the book. So I landed, a, you know, proper funding to finally wow. <laughs> publish the project. Yeah, and it was great because, I mean, awesome like I have the material finally everything is organized and so things from there just moved forward I was able through this uh, generous funding that I got to use different types of paper I mean because of COVID paper has become extremely mm. expensive mm -hmm. um, and the dream to have these different textures in in the book I was afraid that it wouldn't be accomplished but thankfully it was um, so you would see three different types of paper in the book and the cover itself is not as textural as I've wanted, but still there's some texture that would mm -hmm. invite you to open and, and, and use all of your senses to 
um, to look through the book and be part of that experience. And then the, you know, the everything moved forward after that. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like you had an incredibly auspicious week when you were receiving awards right and left. Um, but what's so interesting, too, is it belies the yes, fact Yes, and that I was breastfeeding, by the way, while I got the news. Women, women, women. Yes, that's an amazing truth. And this idea that you had a 10 year gestation of this project before it had that kind of um, facilitating its birth out into the world. So congratulations. It's absolutely it's absolutely amazing that all that came together. And I'm I'm excited. I wanted um, I don't want to end, but I do want to touch on on um, two things. Um, one is, I think you're part. You've been part of some festivals, which are really interesting, and we'll hyperlink to the awards that you um, got as well as the festivals. But the is the San Jose Photo Festival current, or did that happen? Yeah. Uh, it happened already. Uh, okay. it ha- I think it was in June, mm. in June 2023. And I think mm. it already ended. I think it was running for two months. Yeah, so mm. it already ended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was glad to see the breadth of the places that your work has been shown, the different countries. It's you. fantastic. Um, I also you. understood you studied with um, Ada Moliné. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, <you. laughs> lucky me. That's true. I mean, Aida is amazing on both the personal and the professional level. And also my daughter's name is Aida. So it was yes. extra special. Too. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Thank you. Yes. So you pronounce it Aida. Yeah. Yes. Aida. Aida. <laughs> um, yeah. Because in terms of re-narration, um, we are hearing from so many powerful women who are blending history and its impact. And um, I love because, again, I go back to what you mentioned, which, which is sorrow and celebration. Um, uh, she does the same, right? You might be okay. talking about something so powerfully challenging and frightening like climate change, which you both, your work speaks to this. However, um, uh, there's this idea that, um, or not even idea, it's a belief in the fact that, well, we have created this issue, so we have to innovate our way out of it. And so it's leaning into the humanity. And I think it's also leaning into really highlighting our salvation is in the the collective actions and yeah and you know what does it take for us to learn that if we didn't get it through the last three years I'm really thinking we need to wake up um (laughs) or or be alert to the fact that um it's this everything is us as one of my yeah. uh, my peers says, or I just had someone make a description that came from 
a visual that I really, really love. And it is an old uh, album cover of Pink Floyd that has a beam of light that goes through a prism and comes out in all yeah. those streams. And if that doesn't name it <laughs> or reflect it. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. And I, I, I completely agree with you. And I would add that I think, especially the last three years and also what I'm trying to sell on the project, is that we and the land are one our faith is connected mm. um we only know about ourselves and our you know our sense of belonging when we reconnect to the land whether it is a land that we chose to be part of or we are uh, blood related to uh, whether this land we have been forcefully removed from or we choose to leave or we choose to remain at at the end, our fate is connected, is interconnected. And if we remain the keepers of the land, uh, the land would uh, give us back in return. And, you know, mm -hmm. so uh, I, honestly, the, the book just invites people to learn from the indigenous experience, because I feel um, I feel native communities have really understood this um, and have been applying this. And this is why the, you know, the, the, the action, whatever action that we could do against climate change needs to be from the traditional way of connecting to the land, in my point of view, whether you're from North Africa, uh, Southern Africa, the Middle East, uh, the US, Europe, you still need to learn and have reconcile with your land basically mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes it's funny reconcile um has the same root as um reciprocity right yeah mm. yeah i have one last question and i don't know if you want to or not um let us know about nesting birds yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> um, nesting birds makes me really uh, emotional because mm -hmm. again, I am I am taking from my own personal experiences mm -hmm. and 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 my own sense of identity to reflect on something that it's more that is more universal that is more outside of my story into mm -hmm. other communities. So nesting birds speaks of the um, the the sacredness of maternal bonds mm. uh, basically the nests where the mothers are and the nesters the mothers and the children and this includes the biological maternal bond but also the adoptive uh, maternal mm. bonds and the beauty of how chosen families um, create uh, or develop maternal bonds um, mm. and choose to do so and so nesting birds reflects on the notion of motherhood mm -hmm. through stories of mothers mm -hmm. but also these stories of mothers can highlight uh, stories of humankind from a different narrative because mothers they know us best right they know everything they know our history our personal history you know they know our first wound our first crush and so if we create a collective memory of mothers, we could actually learn a lot about our history as human beings and our culture and how we have changed. And so mm -hmm. Nesting Birds um, reflects on the, that, that bigger notion of motherhood. Mm -hmm. And it's divided into different uh, chapters, one of which is something collaborative between me and my daughter, um, but also another chapter that works with chosen families. 
um and another chapter that works with um you know different mothers and and the, the link between mothers and daughters in specific and the maternal lineage that they carry whether it is traumatic or or otherwise <laughs> mm. it's a super wow. long-term project i'm not sure when it's gonna come out but at least the chapters i have a timeline now <laughs> because <laughs> you know, of funding and stuff. So there are every chapter is going to come out on its own, but hopefully eventually I will have the entire project out. I don't know when, maybe in another decade or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you the the long-term project of motherhood is never ending, it seems. So <laughs> this, this fits with that. But I'm sure <laughs> that you're going to bring the level of sensitivity and empathy um, uh, and such deep honor and respect to this. So I'm, I'm excited to hope. see that. Yes, yes, as it, <laughs> as it unfolds. Um, you made me think of something when you were telling us this. Wow. Again, just another layer of you blending your creative and personal and then, um, giving voice to not only your own experience. I am, I am, I am confident this will have the same trajectory of the evolution will, will happen and, and be seated in all these ways you can't even anticipate. Thank you. I really hope so. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. always scary to, you know, to start on a new project. Mm -hmm. I've been working on this project for two years, but it feels like I've just started to work on it. I mean, um, and I think that's what makes it really exciting as well, <laughs> but mm -hmm. quite intimidating. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I think um, I think those go hand in hand. The scary, exciting, intimidating <laughs> are are usually our best ideas, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> So I am so thankful for this time and for being able to, to celebrate your book and the way in which you made it. It's truly, really special. Thank you so much, Sibylla. I mean, it's an honor to, you know, to speak with you and, you know, and for you to invite me to this, to this uh, podcast. It's, it's amazing. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thank you for joining our conversation. As I mentioned at the introduction, I am excited to offer two online workshops this fall that introduce aspects of my concept-aware framework, one in October and another in December. These small interactive virtual workshops will delve into specifics on how you see and why it matters. The results will include practical and applicable tools to add to your existing creative practices. More information can be found under the Services tab on my website, jsibillasmith.com. There you will also find details on my virtual Paris Photo in Your Pocket, my curated content delivered live from the largest photocentric art fair. Lastly, if you enjoy our podcast, please follow, subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate when you share this resource and give us a shout out. Concept Aware is being listened to by thousands in over 60 countries. Please connect on other social media platforms where you will find me under J. Sibylla.
I use all these methods to engage and expand our global visual culture conversation. Thanks for joining us.